0: You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Welcome to America Change Forever. I'm Jeff Begay. They did it again. Actually, they're likely still doing it. Russian intelligence once again targeting U.S. entities with a cyber attack confirmed by Microsoft. Company executive Tom Burt wrote in a blog post this week that Russian hackers behind SolarWinds, which is a reference to another massive hack, targeted resellers and other technology service providers that customize, deploy, and manage cloud services. Microsoft says the latest attacks didn't exploit flaws in software, but actually used password sprays and spear phishing. First, we're going to talk about Russian cyber capabilities with Malcolm Nance.
1: We know that we've carried out offensive operations against some cyber criminals that are operating in Russia, and that's uh, going after some of the ransomware organizations. But, you know, again, we are a democratic society. You can't stop every business, every industry uh, from being exploited.
0: And we are also going to hear from cyber expert Sean Planky on whether the Biden administration has failed to curb these Russian cyber intrusions. And they're not going to stop
2: now. Why? Because it works. They're successful. (laughs) Uh, Why would you stop if you knew what you were doing was successful?
0: And finally, it's October and the fall classic is back. I get to talk baseball. In terms of the viability,
3: that's the question is how serious is baseball about any of this? Will they put the money into it? Will they put the attention into it? Or is this just more public relations? strategizing to say they're doing things without really putting the oomph behind it that makes it happen
0: first here's the real serious stuff microsoft hacked by russia-backed cyber operatives we ran the numbers cyber attacks and data breaches cost u.s businesses over 3.8 billion dollars in the year 2020 alone using data from statista and ibm and we're seeing even more attacks in 2021 Malcolm Nance is the executive director of the Terror Asymmetrics Project and a former U.S. intelligence officer. All right, Malcolm, it looks like Russian intelligence is up to their old tricks. Or, frankly, it looks like they haven't stopped hacking Microsoft targets.
1: Well, it certainly appears that way. And I'd like to call attention to the fact that, you know, throughout the the last five years, certainly starting in 2015, running into 2016, we saw and a significant amount of their activity was being conducted by Russian military intelligence, or the GRU. And most people got particularly comfortable with the, their uh, their uh, use of cyber tools through these groups known as Cozy Bear and Fancy Bear, as uh, one of the cybersecurity companies that uh, identified them. And those are actually the, 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 the malware suites they use to get into these organizations like the Democratic National Committee. But now, you know, the uh, the types of operations that we're seeing are being carried out by Russian National Intelligence Agency, the successor to the KGB, which is the SVR. That's Russia's equivalent of the CIA. And uh, they uh, are, appear that, uh, you know, catching them last year uh, was not enough. And they are carrying out their activities and apparently that they are working on more exploits uh, than they've had before.
0: According to Microsoft, they are targeting organizations integral to the global supply chain. So what do you think Russian intelligence's goal is, if that is indeed the case? Well, if you look at it, no no matter which country you're dealing
1: with, you know, all intelligence activities and national security do come down to an economic component of this. However, when you're talking about an agency like the SVR, right, the Russian intelligence agency, their national intelligence agency, going after the, you know, the the access ways to the, to, to the supply chains can uh, give you, one, an enormous amount of future intelligence, especially if you're going... Uh, into organizations that are actually, you know, constructing the computer networks, the servers, even microchips and, you know, um, and processors, gaining that intelligence and certainly being able to exploit organizations and and companies that are creating these systems gives you a significant advantage. Um, Another thing is, just plain economic and espionage, stealing these systems. Russia does not have a uh, as healthy, um, you know, a, a, a does not have as healthy a uh, production base as the United States and some parts of China. But by going after the producers themselves, going after the companies that create the servers, going after the server infrastructure, and essentially laying. Uh, you know, minefields of access everywhere. It means that Russia can uh, dedicate itself to not just collecting that information, but exploiting that. You know, our networks, other countries' networks, and creating secure networks for themselves.
0: So, if this is Russian intelligence, yes, we are, Is there a difference between hackers who are working with the Russian government as part of criminal gangs, or Are SVR hackers used for specific purposes, which is different from how some of these criminal gangs operate with a wink and a nod from the Kremlin?
1: Well, certainly the the criminal hackers, which in Russia, to a certain extent, are referred to as vigilante hackers, right? Or, you know, hackers who are doing it for the betterment of Russia, despite the fact that they're getting rich by conducting blackmail and other operations. There's a significant difference between the two. Uh, Number one, the SVR is a national intelligence agency, and they, in coordination with Russia's version of the National Security Agency or the Special Communications Information Service over there, they will have very specific goals uh, about what they want, what they want to get into, what they intend to exploit, and also the highly specialized nature of the tools and the operations that they would take to get into these networks and exploit them for a very long term. You don't want to just exploit, uh, you know, expend an enormous amount of effort, and uh, you know, get one piece of information. You want to try to get information over a very long period of time, and and gain as many access ways, backdoors, and uh, and other methodologies that will get you information even when some of your exploits are found.
0: Are you surprised that this activity is continuing despite President Biden's warning to Putin several months ago at their summit to cut out this kind of activity that is still going on? Is this Putin saying, I don't care what you think, we're going to do what we do? Well, I'm certainly not surprised
1: because you have to understand the president of Russia is not a democratically elected president, right? This is a guy who was essentially appointed Uh, by getting the previous president out of trouble, but he was also a former Russian intelligence officer. He is a former KGB officer and the first director of the successor organization, the FSB, uh, when he became uh, the prime minister and then elected, so to speak, president of Russia. And from that time onward, he has dedicated many, many, many more times amount of resources uh, than, it, than the previous regime did uh, in trying to exploit the West. He understands the West. Vladimir Putin, back when he was a young KGB officer, was also involved in get, gaining, you know, fledgling computer technology from West Germany uh, and to, into the former Soviet Union. He knows that the future is information systems. So by allowing his agencies to go out and carry out operations which will gain them economic advantage, will gain them intelligence advantage, will gain them uh, perhaps future advantage to create a deeper, broader uh, uh, um, IT uh, uh, industry within their own country, he's not going to turn any of that off. He doesn't care about what America thinks uh, or it can or can't do. Uh, they know uh, in Russia that the United States is a democracy. Democracy slow. And require an enormous amount of discussion before they'll take action uh they're in an information war with us and they know that you know the west being the west the united states being a democracy uh, it'll take a long time for us to do anything to hold them accountable and as i said the the previous administration was quite friendly to them and uh they they placed their bets and uh, used information warfare, and they don't care what sanctions we put against them. Nothing is going to hurt them uh, enough for them to stop their intelligence activities.
0: It seems like there continues to be so many targets for them to hack. And what Microsoft is saying in this latest incident is that these hackers weren't looking for vulnerabilities in the software, but they used phishing and password sprays to gain entry into these targeted network. So so despite this cybersecurity, cyber hygiene education that the U.S. government is trying to get people to understand and pay attention to, it just sounds like people still don't get it, that when they click on one of these links in an email from someone you don't know, it can lead to being hacked. You know, this is why
1: Russia depends on phishing email operations to you know, to gain access to networks, to get passwords and, and uh, work their exploits into these systems. It's so easy. One of the, the operations that they carried out years ago, they, they, they did it through India on, uh, into, the, uh, into NATO headquarters. And what they did was they got, gained access to one person's email, and that trusted person's email was used to send out phishing emails. So, you know, when you're trying to maintain your cyber hygiene by not clicking on links to people you don't know, foreign intelligence agencies are smart enough to gain access to systems through one person who has a weak password or who may have uh, been exploited through another methodology to gain access to their email, and then those trusted emails go out it's 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 a little nefarious, but human nature within secure networks says, "Hey, I can go ahead and you know click on this picture or go to that link, and you not know that your system's being flooded with with malware because that's the job of your IT security team is to do that. But you know if if we were to not be able to click on anything, the the entire structure would uh, would collapse. Uh, with that, I think that. One of the things that we're not doing, which could, you know, it it has some risk to it, is a few more offensive operations. We know that we've carried out offensive operations against some cyber criminals that are operating in Russia, and that's uh, going after some of the ransomware organizations. But, you know, again, we are a democratic society. You can't stop every business, every industry uh, from being exploited. And in in that way, even with the good cyber hygiene and knowing, you know, that phishing operations are the fastest way into your network's heart, you know, there's always going to be some vulnerability.
0: I was going to ask you about U.S. offensive cyber attacks. The U.S. government obviously doesn't give us much insight into what they're doing, but just based on your work in the intel world Do you think that the U.S. hackers are as prolific at hitting targets as the Russian cyber hackers are?
1: You know, I worked at the National Security Agency uh, as a military intelligence collector for them. And let me tell you, the the NSA has a very interesting philosophy. Uh, NSA prides itself at being a collection agency. That means that they go out, they gather information, even if it's through Uh, You know, using technical means such as hacking, they try to be as unobtrusive as possible. They want to try to get as much intelligence as possible, gain those resources and have them in their, you know, in our quiver for uh, mainly time of war. We are not like the Russians. The Russians hack because, you know, the way we drink coffee in the morning is the way that the Russians use exploits and hacks and gain intelligence and uh, and exploit both business and um, and government agencies. Our offensive capabilities, which would come through the cyber command, are generally reserved for a special operation that would have to be authorized by the president. You know, when you get into these tit for tat type of wars and you start using highly specialized tools and and, and exploits, as we saw with Stuxnet. They can make their way back into your world and can be used against you. And as you know, the, there was a, a, a highly secretive stash of NSA tools that were stolen that we've seen being used around the world by other organizations. So, you know, again, we generally don't like to use these, these advanced cyber bombs or advanced cyber guided missiles uh, to go after uh, organizations and, and and agencies unless they've been deemed as a threat uh, to the United States. We're, we're just not like uh, these far, you know, these other non-democratic foreign powers.
0: Malcolm Nance, thank
1: you. It's my pleasure.
0: All right, let's continue our examination of the recent revelations about Russia's cyber criminal activity with Sean Plankey. After spending two years at the White House, first as Director for Cyber Policy for the National Security Council, and then as Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary for Cybersecurity, Energy Security, and Emergency Response for the Department of Energy, in the private sector, Sean is the Director of Cyber Missions for DataRobot, which is an artificial intelligence company. Ironically, October is Cybersecurity Month, a bad month for the Russians to continue their hacking activity and for the U.S. government uh, to really have no public response to what we're seeing. Why is it, Sean, that the Russians seem to brush off President Biden's warnings to stop hacking? <laughs> first, first and foremost, I'd like to say that the uh,
2: adversarial governments around the world have brushed off every president's warnings to stop hacking. Right. It's um, it's like Imagine if we were in the Cold War and I and I and the president, whoever was the president, would tell Russia to stop spying on us. I'm pretty sure they wouldn't stop this this the same reason they're not going to stop now. Why? Because it works. They're successful.
0: (laughs) Uh, Why would you stop if you knew what you were doing was successful? (laughs) Yeah, I know. I see your point. It works. And I'm sure that the U.S. is hitting targets in Russia. Obviously, they don't like to talk about that, but I'm sure that there is some level of offensive hacking going on on the part of the U.S. government. But what does it mean when President Biden makes these very public statements about potentially imposing more sanctions on Russia when they just don't seem to be a deterrent to the Kremlin? Yeah, that, that, that's right. That's right. You know, we're,
2: we're at a point. In um, U.S. foreign policy, where we we've realized that there's no such thing as a a, a rules based order, right? Where we think everybody's going to you know follow the rules, play along with the rules. President Biden said there was 15 untouchable industries. Don't hack any of these 15 things. Well, no public declaration or or threat is is going to be effective. I mean to show that i mean we went through this in 2015 with china where we said hey stop stealing our intellectual property at the time everyone thought that oh china was listening to us and now doing our cyber forensics and looking back on it we see that china just changed tactics right they continued their they continued their techniques the same thing is uh is going on with russia here right they they're not going to stop and in fact Many Russian oligarchs who we've slapped sanctions on over the years, uh, they view it as a, as a badge of courage and it enhances their declarations of loyalties to Vladimir Putin. Right. It, it, it's, a bad, it's a badge of honor um, showing that you're more loyal to the Russian government. So I don't think that any sort of diplomatic declaration is, is actually going to make a difference.
0: So what is the Biden administration to do? At least to present the image, if you will, to the American public that, you know, we're not going to allow these Russian intelligence agencies to hack into everything we have. So great question.
2: So I think that there's two vectors there. One vector is, hey, we have to increase our own security posture and, and, and take cybersecurity seriously. And I think um, Director Jen Easterly over at CISA, the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency, is is doing a great job there in terms, she's getting the word out. She's talking about different just basic techniques to stop cybersecurity attacks. I mean, Microsoft reported that most of these, this latest intrusion was through routine techniques, such as, you know, password spraying and phishing. And she's been very forward and, and in proactive measures you can't, you can do to protect yourself there, but the second aspect is you have to actually go on the offensive. And in the in the last administration, the National Security Council uh, and the president the president wrote up authorizations allowing entities in the U.S. government and the Department of Defense to take proactive action to stop things such as ransomware to stop adversarial uh, activity. But the, you know, the military, the Department of Defense has to be willing to do that. And what I mean is we have to think outside of the current norm. Right now, the military, it's almost like the Revolutionary War, where the British wanted to fight the United States on a field of battle, man against man, line your line, you know, form your men up and march towards each other and shoot at each other. And you know the bad guy because they wear the opposite outfit. They wear the different color Uh, Military uniform. That's how we're attempting to fight in cyberspace, and that's just not how our adversaries are attacking us. Right? They're using the American approach of guerrilla warfare um, by using people that are, you know, maybe they're civilians. Some of them are military, and in the Russian case, it's almost as if they have letters of mark amongst private criminal gangs that can attack the United States without fear of retribution by the Russian government. That's what they're doing to us. And in our, in response, we have to be willing to make their life more difficult. We have to be willing to take activity against those individuals, those criminal organizations in cyberspace to expose them, to attack their, their personal financial accounts, things such as uh, make their day-to-day life more difficult. And they have to know that it's us that, that we are the ones doing it um, if we want to move towards any sort of deterrent-based uh, response.
0: So what you've just outlined suggests that we're failing at this, that policies aren't up to date, that we've become this big target for hackers, both government-affiliated as well as criminal gangs. And we really haven't taken the steps that we need to take as citizens and as the government of the United States to counter this persistent threat so the the policy I think
2: actually is up to date that that's that was that's been the recent changes over the past five years at this point. but what is not changed is the culture right the culture and the structure of military operations based on a theory that we know that the adversary wears a different color uniform, right? That all of the United States adversaries will declare themselves as enemies of the US government. And that's, that's just not true. That's, that's my point. Like a cyber, uh, a Russian cyber criminal or criminal organization is not going to self-declare as an enemy combatant to the United States. It's just not in (laughs) in their best interest. And so we have to recognize that the culture has to change. The policy actually is already there. The policy does say that a Russian criminal organization, you know, who's acting at the behest or in, you know, in support of a nation state is is an adversary. We have to be willing to counter them.
0: Cultural change as it relates to cyber. How long did it take? Generations. 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 That's kind of scary.
2: Yeah, I think it is. is't I think it is a generational issue. I mean, I hope I, I, I work to make it faster than that, and I and I like to see it move faster than that. But I think on the on the current trend line, it, it is a, a a generational issue. I mean, uh, if we think about right now, just evolution of mil of the military. Um, I think about when you think about some of these technologies. I mean. Secretary of Defense Bob Gates wrote in, in his, his book talking about his time as a secretary of defense that he could not get the military to stop buying Humvees, right? The Humvee was, was exploding all across Iraq due to IED strikes. The adversaries had figured out that this was a weak point and they could decimate U.S. troops with it. Secretary of Defense Gates said that he had to actually specifically write a memo, go down, meet with the program managers at all levels of the DoD to literally stop the contract and force the DoD to stop buying Humvees. The government does not want to change, even at the behest, in that case, of American lives. And it's no different in cyberspace.
0: That's really interesting. And What is also interesting, according to Microsoft, is that these Russian hackers, they're using that old trick. It's not about finding vulnerabilities in the software, but it's about getting someone to click on a link that allows them to get into the computer networks and potentially hide out for months or even longer. So they were phishing, and they were doing these password sprays,
2: right? That's right. The routine techniques that have been... Um, path, phishing and password spraying have been around you know, almost as long as email has been around. Um, it's routine techniques. And one of the interesting things about just, let's say, phishing in particular, you don't really need to buy sophisticated cybersecurity tools to stop phishing, right? You don't, you don't need to buy sophisticated cybersecurity tools to stop somebody from guessing your password. There's some simple simple things such as multi-factor or two-factor authentication and using a more complex password. Those basic things, I mean, many of which two-factor authentication is pretty much afforded to you right now with app applications you use on your on your cell phone. Um, so it's not it's not a sophisticated uh, a defense posture that you need to do it, and yet you know, it's still a cultural barrier for most of uh, America to do.
0: Well, speaking for millions of Americans, two-factor identification is really annoying. <laughs> all these different passwords that you have to remember, so annoying, but all right, I get it, we have to do it. That's that's right, that's right.
2: I, I've, had, uh, I've had, I have this discussion with my uh, family all the time, in particular, my my father-in-law made an argument that he didn't care who read his email. He didn't care who had access to, let's say his wifi. He said, what do I have to hide? And I said, it's not so much that what you have to hide, but he's also a guy that gets very annoyed when, uh, when he has to like go to the DMV or do, you know, go stand in line somewhere and wait for something to happen. I said, well, you know, would you hate it if somebody gave you uh, you know, 100 parking tickets in one day, and you had to go to the DMV and try to clean it up? Would you hate it if you had to spend hours on your phone with credit reporting agencies trying to fix your, fix your credit or stop unauthorized charges? He said, yeah, that would be the worst. I said, well, that's why you need to spend the extra, you know, 20 seconds uh, or, or uh, a minute to, to, you know, doubly secure your network
0: or 10 minutes. I just tried (laughs) to get into a site where I had to pay a bill and you have to put in your username, then your password, then you have to play this game where you identify signs or buses or intersections. And sometimes those puzzles, if you will, are a lot more complicated than they look and they take more time than you expect. So after all that, you're 10 minutes in trying to get into the site where you're trying to pay your bill because of all this, you know, multi-factor uh, security. But I understand what you're saying, Sean, that it is a necessary evil and we have to do it to protect our personal information. <laughs> that's right, that's right. Sean Plankey, Director of Cyber Missions for Data Robot. Thank you very much for your time. Oh, Thank you so much for having me. As we record this episode for AirPlay over the weekend, the Houston Astros have tied the Atlanta Braves in the World Series. It's one game apiece. Game one of the series attracted almost 11 million viewers. That's an increase from last year, but still well below historic averages. Baseball was once considered America's pastime, but its popularity has been eclipsed by other sports. Joining us now to talk about the series and the health of baseball in general is Travis Waldron, a reporter from the Huffington Post who covers the politics of Brazil, the United States, and sports. Travis, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. As we mentioned before, we recorded this earlier in the week, so we can't give a whole lot of analysis of the series matchup. But one thing did happen in Game 1 that we know is not going to change throughout the World Series The Atlanta Braves' ace, Charlie Morton, broke his leg in the early innings of Game 1. But this is what's incredible. He kept on pitching. And he pitched on what turned out to be a broken fibula. Let's talk about that for a second. I mean, just let that sink in, the pain that he must have been in. So, Travis, what was your takeaway when you learned that Morton was able to keep pitching with potentially a broken fibula and still dominate those batters
3: well so the first thing here is uh full disclosure i am an atlanta braves fan so my first thought was this is the most atlanta thing ever the braves are kind of cruising through this game charlie morton had a rough first inning but comes back and seems dominant and then as he gets a strikeout he gets hurt and they have to go to the bullpen and now the whole series is up in the air but then when you actually learned the extent of it, it was just sort of remarkable. I mean, he he got three outs, I think with two strikeouts on a broken leg. Um it, it like harkens back to like classic baseball sort of memories, which you know, Kurt Gibson in the in the World Series with two bum knees hitting a home run, or to more recent things in other sports like Tiger Woods winning the U S open on essentially a broken leg, but to do it pitching, I mean, and, and it was his back leg. So it's, you know, all the weight going on to that really remarkable, um, feet. And it's, it's a bummer for Charlie Morton, obviously, who's one of the, you know, great. Recent stories in baseball, the kind of journeyman who never figured it out. And then suddenly in, in kind of ancient age for a baseball player became just this dominant starting pitcher and especially in the postseason he just has a tremendous postseason record uh and it would have been nice to to see him be able to play out this world series as it is he's not going to be back until next year but like if the, if the braves finish this off if they if they manage to win the world series it, it's gonna it feels like it's gonna go down as one of those like historic moments it, that that you see over and over again of this guy getting people out in a, in a really phenomenal Astros lineup on a broken leg.
0: It reminds me of Kurt Schilling pitching with staples in his ankle <laughs> right. and the bloody sock or allegedly bloody sock.
3: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's one of those. And obviously Kurt Schilling went much deeper into that, that game. And, uh, but you know, it's, it's these guys, you know, they're just remarkable athletes and, and they're, they're incredible in, in so many ways. And, you know, I can't imagine having a fractured fibula and doing much of anything, much less throwing 95 mile an hour fastballs and getting major league hitters out.
0: One of the outcomes of the broken leg and the opposing team's terrible outing for their starter was the extensive use of the bullpens for both teams. Handicap the bullpens for both the Braves and the Astros and tell me what role you think they might play throughout this series.
3: Well, I, the Braves bullpen is weird uh, because they, they weren't very good for the first half of the year. Over the last half of the year, they were one of the better back-end bullpens in the league. Uh, they, they're stocked up with lefty arms. They, they all throw hard, which is kind of the typical bullpen in baseball now. Everybody throws hard. Everybody throws these big sliders. They're hard to hit. Um. The Astros' bullpen is, is also pretty good. I, I think it, the interesting thing about this is just the prominence of bullpens in postseason games now. You see teams doing these bullpen games. Uh, Atlanta's done several of them already. The Astros have done a couple of them. And it's really the point now is you have to have bullpens that can churn uh, chew up innings to go deep in the postseason because these guys, the starting pitching just isn't, going as deep as it used to uh and so it it really feels like the key to the series and and it's kind of from from one side the braves to the astros uh, um you know the braves are kind of hard throwing slider pitchers lots of lefties uh who also pitch well against right handers and and rack up a lot of strikeouts the astros are a team that don't strike out that much so you kind of have strength on strength there and on the other side, the Braves, you know, over the last four or five years, uh, have been one of the better late game teams in terms of comebacks uh, post seventh inning. Uh, they they weren't as good at that this year, but they have a few of those in the postseason already. They they came back twice and walked off games against the Dodgers. Uh, they've scored a lot of runs late. Uh, they had a walk off win to win the series in in Milwaukee. Uh, so you know, it's one of the you, you see strength for both of these teams kind of going up against each other. And it really feels like even more so it's kind of a baseball cliche, but it really feels even more so than usual that this series is going to be decided kind of seventh inning on
0: the world series used to be a dominant television event. And listen, it's still big, very big, but baseball as America's pastime is really seen its day it's still a very popular sport, but it doesn't seem to have the same resonance in the hearts and minds of people as the NFL does, and to some extent, even the NBA. What's your assessment on baseball's status as a cultural touchstone, especially now that we're in the World Series?
3: Well, the first thing is that baseball's problems are, are real. Uh, you know, if you look at the age demographics of baseball uh, fans, they're the oldest uh, in the country in terms of the other major men's sports leagues. And then you look at the numbers on diversity and things like that. Baseball has some very real problems when it comes to the future. Uh, at the same time, I always find that conversation funny because no sport in this country spends more time talking about the problems it has than baseball. And it's sort of, you know, from the commissioner's office on down, it's not just the, the baseball media it's it's, the commissioner Rob Manfred, the executives in the game, the media, they they dwell on baseball's problems. And some of that at times feels kind of reinforcing. Um that baseball spends a lot of time telling everybody else that it's not cool anymore and that it's not that popular anymore. And that's what people hear. And uh, you know, so I think there's a it's kind of double-edged sword of baseball knows it has problems to fix, but it focuses so much on them at times that it, it kind of distracts from the actual game. Uh, that said, one of the things I thought last night was, uh, and, and this goes to our talk about the bullpens, so they, they really do need to figure out ways to speed up these games and, and to start them at hours that, frankly, allow more young people to watch them. Like The game last night started at 8 o'clock, a little after 8 o'clock. By the end of the first inning, it was almost 9 o'clock the game ended after midnight like that's not conducive to young fans um you 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 might get some diehards like me who can remember staying up late for game seven of the world series when i was four or five years old and my parents letting me do that but most kids aren't aren't able to do that and it's not just during the world series but throughout the playoffs and during the regular season there are fewer day games there are fewer uh, opportunities to engage in the sport, and and I think that's a huge problem. They they have to do better at making the sport accessible to younger fans and 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 broader groups of people.
0: Major League Baseball has appointed somebody to look at these challenges of attracting a younger fan base and also a more diverse fan base. Theo Epstein, a former Wonder from Boston and Chicago. Why was he chosen to address this and what steps is he planning on taking or do you think he should take in order to have a resurgence of baseball?
3: I think he was probably chosen because he has such a good reputation within the game. I mean, he, you know, Theo Epstein has kind of been the superstar executive in baseball for 20 years now, back dating back to his time as the general manager in Boston. And then, he, you know, he went to Chicago, he wins World Series and like the two most beleaguered franchises in in the history of baseball Um, he obviously and and when you spend time in both of those markets they're also two of the most diehard markets in baseball so you know he he probably has plenty of tangible experience there in terms of steps I mean I mentioned the speed of the game baseball's taking uh, up different things uh they're experimenting with different things in in minor league levels to speed up the game and to make the game more interesting some of the things i like are things that aren't even about the speed of the game necessarily but just the aesthetics of how it's played you know we've had in the last few years a lot of the 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 kind of data revolution in baseball over the last two decades led to the end of small ball the end of stolen bases uh you know, the end of things that really made baseball entertaining and you got to these sort of three true outcomes of every at bat. So you get a lot of strikeouts, you get a lot of home runs, and then you get a lot of nothing in between that. And that leads to longer games. It also leads to less action. And so that some of the things that they're trying to do or experiment with to bring back stolen bases, to, to make it more, you know, make it make it make math sense more to steal bases are good because I think some of baseball's problems are just the way the game is played now. And, you know, I like watching baseball teams run. I like watching baseball teams, um, hit and run. I like watching them, you know, get, have to string three hits together to, to score a run instead of just waiting on the home run. And, you know, the math sometimes says that isn't the smartest way to play baseball, but you know, it, it is in a lot of ways, the more entertaining way to play baseball. And, and you know, you get, you get more of that into the game. You get more things where people feel like they're not just waiting for home runs or big strikeouts. Um, and it, it could help. And so I think there's a lot of good things going on in baseball that, where they're trying to experiment with those. And, and if we see some of those at the major league level, uh, it could be, it could be really beneficial for
0: the sport there is a bit of irony here as major league baseball is pursuing a younger demographic to attract fans you have a record being set for the managers of these two world series teams they're both well they're the oldest managers ever to manage a world series
3: yeah it's interesting um But this also goes to, you know, beyond their age, I think this is one of the things that baseball also has to do better is to tell stories about itself. And both of these managers have really remarkable stories. Uh, You know, Dusty Baker is Dusty Baker. He is a baseball legend who has never won the World Series, but has now taken, you know, two teams there, one from each league. He's in rare heights in in terms of that and in addition to that he's you know a black icon of baseball and you know everyone loves Dusty Baker i don't know how you could not love Dusty Baker on the other side Brian Snitger is kind of a baseball lifer and every man who you know toiled his way up the ladder through the Atlanta organization i think he's been there for 46 years um and he, he, you know he his son is now coaching on the For the astros he's the hitting coach and so you have these great stories and i think there are times where baseball has to embrace those stories and tell those stories and use them to try and attract more people uh you know and that goes for its players and it's it's the people it puts out front too you know they it's like i said baseball often spends so much time talking about its problems that the the fun things about baseball get lost and these are two great stories that you know even if you say, oh, these are two old guys. They're, they are the average age of the current baseball fan. But the story the, the story they have is, is kind of universal.
0: You mentioned that Dusty is a black icon of baseball, and of course he is. But listen, when he was playing, he had a lot more peers who were also African-Americans than we see in the game today. And that is something that Major League uh, Baseball players current and past have identified as a problem the league has identified it as a problem as well and they want to attract more players of color and they say they are taking steps to do that what are they doing and what's your assessment of its viability
3: well this is a long-running conversation for baseball it feels like we we have this conversation every year every spring around Jackie Robinson day uh, I know in the past you know I've, I've Talked to Tony Clark, the head of the Major League Baseball Players Association, about this, and Tony Clark is black and and uh, was in the game at a time when this 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 decline in the number of black players really started to begin. Uh, and his take on it was that they need to invest a lot more in youth baseball in black communities and in, in and with black players because the the bottom rungs of the game have become really expensive and really stratified and, and really kind of siloed. It, it costs a lot of money to to get started in youth baseball now, much less to stick with the game for as long as it takes to, to ascend to the major league level. And, you know, one of the other things that's going on in baseball right now is, is the kind of labor movement for better wages and benefits for minor league players, which is another huge barrier to anyone who comes from a background that isn't moneyed um, and and already somewhat wealthy, and when the minor leagues of this sport, players are making at times less than the minimum wage. They don't have housing. They don't have benefits. Uh, that's a huge barrier. When you look at someone like, say, Kyler Murray, the quarterback of the Arizona uh, Cardinals, who was drafted into the major leagues and he went straight, you know, and, and drafted into the NFL and. In the NFL he goes straight into making millions of dollars. In baseball, he might have a million dollar signing bonus, but he's probably gonna toil in the minor leagues for two to three years, best case. And that's not a very appealing lifestyle if when the alternative is out there. And for you know, they, but then he's on the superstar level when you go down a, a level of player. You know, the minor leagues are a hard life. They're hard to be a part of they're hard to stick with um and so i think you know a lot of this it it sounds overly simplistic but it comes down to money and it comes down to investing in people and then it circles back to what we talked about earlier is making the game more accessible for people who aren't going to be major leaguers one day but you want to turn into lifelong fans when they're children and you know, one of my pet peeves with baseball is like it's local blackout rules on broadcast. I don't think baseball has done nearly as good of a job as the NBA in terms of embracing social media to have its highlights just kind of going viral naturally. Um, you know, the NBA became this cultural phenomenon during the Vine years because six second clips would just go viral and baseball doesn't really have that. It's never really embrace that. And so I think they need a real comprehensive strategy that sort of puts these things all together. In terms of the viability, that's the question is how serious is baseball about any of this? Will they put the money into it? Will they put the attention into it? Or is this just more public relations kind of strategizing to say they're doing things without really putting the oomph behind it that makes it happen?
0: Maybe if we pitch them on doing a six hour clip instead of a six minute one, they would find that more appealing because that seems to be their lane.
3: They they have to that. I think it goes back to they have to just make this this game more accessible. And that goes for the time of games that goes for when the games are played, where they're played, how they're played. And and, you know, all of this, like I said, I think just wraps up together and. They have to be aggressive about it. And instead, you know, the big worry I would have, uh, the big worry I have as a baseball fan and as somebody who cares about the future viability of the sport uh, is that instead it seems like we're cruising for another labor war. Uh, and, and that I think will set back any of the progress baseball might be trying to make if, if they go another season without baseball or any period of time without baseball.
0: Travis Waldron, sports reporter, and a lot more for the Huffington Post. Thanks for being here. Thank you. That is it for this week's America Change Forever podcast. You can download previous episodes wherever you download your podcasts. Please subscribe, rate, and review. And don't forget to share the podcast. My thanks to Paul Woody Woodhull and District Productive. I'm Jeff Begays, and that is How America Changed Forever.